The following message is from Ridgewood Church in Greer, South Carolina. For more information, visit RidgewoodGreer.com. Now, who doesn't love a great ending? I remember uh, back in 2002 or so, uh, 2006 rather, the 2002 film, The Count of Monte Cristo, I watched for the very first time. Has anybody seen that movie, The Count of Monte Cristo? It is like the classic revenge flick. And we don't condone revenge at Ridgewood. That's a, you know, that's, Paul speaks to that in Romans. We're not saying that revenge is a good thing, but maybe it scratches like the justice itch as we watch this film. I remember watching it, and it's the story of this guy who's unjustly imprisoned. He meets this very powerful, rich uh, guy while he's in prison. He's given that, the, the clues to where some treasure is located. He gets all the treasure and then uses all of that money and the training that he did while in prison to exact revenge on all of his enemies. And it's just excellent. Again, the revenge part isn't, but the film is great. And I remember 2006 or so, I'm, I'm watching this with my college roommate, and we're at my roommate's brother's house, a guy named Joe. The movie ends, and as soon as the credits roll, I remember Joe standing up and just saying, that is an ending. That is a movie. Have you ever experienced that before? You, you read a book or you, you listen to a podcast and you get to the end of that particular story and it's like, man, I just feel complete and whole as a result of that ending, right? Now, if, if that's the case, that sometimes we, we read endings and stories that are deeply satisfying, other times we, we read stories and we, we, we watch movies or shows that end in a way that's deeply unsatisfying, who here watched the show Lost? Is anybody a collective groan about Lost? Now, I know this probably speaks to a very particular group of people in this room. Maybe you were in college in like the years like 2003 to 2010. If that's you, you were, you were around for like the height of Lostdom. I remember every single week with my roommates in college, we were drawn in and we were watching Lost and just could not wait to see what was going to happen next to Jack and Kate and, and Locke and everybody else. And nothing happens to those people. That's, that's the whole show. The whole show was built on being this kind of incredible, twisty narrative. And then it just ends, and you were left completely frustrated and unsatisfied. Amen? Amen. Right. So if you see Lost on Netflix or whatever, and you're tempted to watch it, just don't. It's not worth the trouble and not worth the heartache. Now, what's really interesting is we have arrived at the end of our walkthrough in the book of Acts. And frankly, it just kind of ends it just kind of stops. The book begins with this promise from the Lord Jesus that my disciples are going to go out from here, from Jerusalem, to the ends of the earth, testifying to his kingship and to his resurrection and to his power and glory. Jesus sends his apostles out, out excuse me, by his Holy Spirit. We see their life together as a church. We see the missional movement and the expanse of the church. We see God's miraculous providence and care over his people. And most recently in chapter 21, Paul the Apostle is in prison. He's, he's arrested unjustly in the temple. He's passed from court to court since chapter 21. And over the last few chapters, there's been a ton of momentum building towards this grand conclusion. Paul says, I appeal to Caesar. And as we're reading the book, we expect Paul's going to make his way to Caesar. He's going to stand before Caesar. He's going to testify with a bang in the heart of the Roman Empire that Jesus is Lord of Lords. That Christ is Lord and Caesar is not. That the kingdom is, is a kingdom from another world that's going to make all rulers and authorities bow their knee before the Lord God and his Christ. We expect the story to go that way and guess what happens. It doesn't. 
It just kind of ends. Let's look at chapter 28, starting in verse 1. After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all, because it had begun to rain and it was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited so, uh, so long a time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Now, by way of reminder, Zach taught us last week in Acts chapter 27, we see that Paul, as he's being delivered to the city of Rome, on his way to Rome, is ultimately caught up in a storm, a nor'easter, and he's ultimately shipwrecked. We're told that they've gone 14 days without seeing the stars. They have no idea where they are. They shipwreck, they jump on floating pieces of wood, and they happen to wash up on the island of Malta, we're told. And then after having been just safely brought through a shipwreck, just as the Lord Jesus promised, they land safely. And they're shown hospitality. And what kind of hospitality does Luke tell us they're shown? Unusual hospitality. Like really good hospitality. He even mentions that these native pagan peoples, they see them kind of, this is during the winter, they see Paul and his companions washing up and shivering and teeth chattering, right? And so they build a fire for these guys so that they can warm themselves after having been shipwrecked. And then what happens? Paul's gathering wood, he's getting up a bundle of sticks, and what jumps out of the firewood and bites Paul? A snake. Now last week, Zach mentioned his... um, Worst nightmare is getting caught in a nor'easter in a shipwreck. I would imagine for many of us, myself included, our worst nightmare looks something like this. Snakes just, the heebie-jeebies, man. I know Preston Renfro, I know know you like collect snakes and you love snakes. Justin Harrison, you had a pet snake for a while for some reason. Do you still have it? Okay, good. (laughs) This kind of ranks among my top five fears, snakes. You know, why has it got to be snakes, Right? A snake jumps out of the fire, and then look at how it's described in verses 3 and 4. The snake fastens on Paul's hand. This is gross. It it fastens onto his hand, and it says the natives see it hanging from Paul's hand. Right? So this snake hasn't just, like, nipped at Paul as he's grabbing the firewood. It jumps out of the wood because the wood's getting hot. Snakes are cold-blooded. It jumps out of the wood and fastens onto Paul's hand. And it says the natives see him holding out, and the snake is hanging from Paul's hand. And he's just dangling there. That's... Freaks me out, right? And so the natives conclude. They see what's happened. They conclude these are prisoners that have been washed ashore. This was obviously a bad dude. Otherwise, why would justice, their notion of retribution or karma, why would justice allow this snake to do this thing if he were a good guy? He's definitely going to die. right? The natives knew snakes. They knew people didn't live when this kind of snake bites you. He's a goner. He must have really deserved it. But what happens instead? It says Paul shakes off the viper, and where does he shake it? He shakes it into the fire. And instead of swelling up and falling down dead like they expect, Paul remains just fine. Like the shipwreck, now the snake bite, Paul is preserved by the Lord Jesus. They conclude, not only is this man innocent, but what what do they think Paul is? This man must be a god for him to have been able to withstand that snake bite. Hold on to that. We'll revisit that in a second. 
Verse 7. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. Notice again, how, how is it described? How were they entertained? Hospitably for three days. Unusual kindness, entertained hospitably. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. And Paul visited him and prayed, putting his hands on him, healing him. Verse 9, And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also, also honored us greatly. And when we were about to set sail, they put on board whatever we needed. So Paul is... Uh, going on, a, much like Jesus does in the Gospels, he's going on a kind of good rampage, right? Rampage against the enemy. It says that uh, we see these uh, folks, they, they see Paul heal Publius' father. These folks come to Paul, and Paul heals all that come to him for three days. He heals the chief, the, the chief's father in verse 9. The rest of the people on the island with diseases come to Paul, and he's cured. And it says that they honor Paul and his company. They put on board whatever Paul and his group need. This hospitality is significant. These are Gentiles. The, the, the word that's translated in the ESV, native people, is, is actually the word that we get barbarian from. Now, barbarian has certain connotations, but the, 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 the point or the way that the Greek word barbarian is used is just to describe people who don't speak the Greek language. So these are very definitely pagans, in other words. Yet they receive Paul. They're hospitable to Paul. They honor Paul and his company. They even give Paul provisions they're receptive to Paul's work. They show them a fire and hospitality with unusual kindness. Verse 11. After three months, we set sail on a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria with the twin gods as a figurehead. The twin gods were a sign of uh, the gods' providence and safety. This is probably Luke just saying, like, your gods have nothing on our God who is actually delivering this man to safety. Verse 12. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. And from there, we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up. And on the second day, we came to uh, Puteoli. Uh, why, would in, why would Luke include these details if he's making this story up? Of course, unless it actually happened and Luke was actually present for these events. Verse 14. There we found brothers, a.k.a. Christians, and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. And the brothers, again Christians there, when they heard about us, they came as far as the form of Appius and the three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and he took courage. And when he came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans." When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, We have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers here coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are, for with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. Right, so Paul sets sail and he resumes his trip back to Rome. He's met and hosted by believers along the way. The gospel has taken root across all over this region and he's shown hospitality by these brothers. And when he arrives for Rome, after resting for three days, he gathers the local Jewish leaders together to explain his situation. Do you remember when you were a kid and you were playing... Um, 
wiffle ball with your sibling, or maybe not wiffle ball, maybe, maybe you're just hitting a tennis ball off a stick, and the ball bounces off the stick and goes and breaks a window, and then you race your brother to go tell your mom on yourself first, because you know it would be worse if they tell on you, and you just don't go ahead and go confess it, right? Paul, what Paul is doing here is he's trying to get out in front of any sort of rumors that could be circulating about what he's been up to. He wants to make sure that the Jews in Rome know exactly why he's in Rome and exactly why he's on trial. And he lists three things. He says, I've done nothing against our people or customs. So remember the charge was that Paul was being really flippant with the law and he was bringing Gentiles into the temple, which weren't true. So he says, he he wants to be clear, I wasn't doing any of those things. I've not done anything against our people or customs. The second thing he says is that after being examined, they saw nothing worthy of condemnation in me. He says, multiple courts took a look at what I was doing and nobody found any reason to condemn me. And then in spite of this finding, third thing, he says, I appeal to Caesar because my own people rejected me. More than rejected me, they have rejected the fulfillment of their own hope. I have nothing against my own nation, Paul says, but they have rejected their very hope, the hope of Israel. And so Paul says, I want to speak to you. I want to get out in front of this thing to make my defense. It's because of Jesus Our Messiah, the hope of our people, he's why I'm in prison and I want to make my case before you. And how do they respond to that? They said, we haven't heard anything about you, nor has any evil been reported. Tell us about this sect of yours because we hear how it's catching fire in this area. Verse 23. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. So Paul is in prison or he's under house arrest and there's a soldier that's kind of tasked with watching over Paul. Maybe there's some Joseph vibes here. Paul has shown himself to be honorable even in imprisonment and so he's afforded certain privileges like folks coming to hear him teach. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, sun up to sundown, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. Verse 24, And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. Here Paul quotes from Isaiah. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their eyes, excuse me, with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. So the appointed day arrives for Paul to make his case. They come to where Paul's staying in great numbers. And from morning till evening, he reasons about the kingdom of God from the law and the prophets. Now, by way of reminder, we saw a couple of weeks ago, That in Luke 24, after Jesus' resurrection appearance, what does he appeal to when he explains to people that the entire story was about him all along? He goes to the law and the prophets. He opens up the law and he opens up the prophets and says, look, it was always supposed to be this way. It was always supposed to be about the Messiah who won victory through suffering and death. Similarly, Paul is teaching that the kingdom of God has come to us in Christ and that it was always supposed to be this way. And the law and the prophets... It was always telling this story. Jesus is is, is like a new Adam. You remember Adam in Genesis 1? Well, Jesus is like a new and better Adam, the true man who truly exercises dominion. You remember Noah from Genesis chapter 6? 
It says, we hoped that Noah was the one to bring us rest. Well, guess what? Jesus is like the new Noah who actually brings his people rest. You, you remember King David? who was supposed to rule with equity and justice. And and as great as King David was, he was mega flawed. Well, Jesus is great David's greater son. He's a king unlike anything we can imagine, even better than King David. Paul is expounding on all these passages and scriptures, showing them that Christ was always the answer to this story. And how do they respond? With a huge meh. We're told that some believe, some were convinced by what he said, and the language there is probably even too strong in the English. It's probably even a little less sort of exciting. It's like, yeah, a handful of them believed. A handful of them were convinced about what Paul said, but others disbelieved. And the whole thing results in verse 25 in them disagreeing among themselves and departing Paul. It just kind of fizzles out. Now, I feel like we're supposed to read this over against the hospitality of the islanders at Malta. It's kind of a tragic story, right? Like the people, the the Jewish people, the one who were expecting the hope of Israel to arrive, are completely indifferent and kind of meh towards this message of Christ. And yet, the islanders, they see Paul and they see something remarkable at work in Paul. They, they, They see, they're impressed, but these Jews don't. Some believe, others disbelieve. And just like Isaiah... Paul, quoting Isaiah chapter 6, just like Isaiah was called to preach a message that your fathers would be, in blind, would be blind and indifferent to, I see that that has been fulfilled in the way that you're responding to me in this gospel message. Paul says, you, you, I, I have preached this message and I have been met with deaf ears and blind eyes and hardness of heart. Judgment has fallen. This is a final pronouncement. In fact, this is Paul's third and final turn to the Gentiles in response to Jewish hardness to the gospel thus far in the book of Acts. You have rejected your hope. Now it's time for me to go to the Gentiles. And then verse 30, the book just ends. Verse 30. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. No neat bows, no happily ever after. We don't even know, or we're not even told what happened to Paul. What are we supposed to make of this? I mean, was Luke planning a volume three and he just never got to it? Was, did Luke run out of time? Was he intending to tell more of the story and he just ran out of time? Did, is the book of Acts incomplete as we know it? I mean, why this kind of head scratcher of an ending that just seems so abrupt? Tradition teaches us that part of Nero's campaign against the Christians included ultimately the beheading of Paul. But Paul's fate... And and, and kind of a neat bow on the story of Paul, well, it seems like in Luke's mind, that's kind of beside the point of the book. As much time as we've spent with Paul, I think what we realize is that the book is not ultimately about Paul. We've seen Jesus promise that his disciples would be his witness about the word of his resurrection. And as the book progresses, the message of the gospel almost becomes a character in the story. Acting and moving, it's living and it's sharp and it's active. And so the book isn't really about the apostles, even though it's traditionally called the Acts of the Apostles. That's a little bit of a misnomer. It's not really about Paul or Peter or Stephen or Philip or James or anybody else. The book is ultimately about the word, the truth of the gospel moving and advancing inevitably. 
There's not an end to the narrative because, well, the word is still advancing and the story of Acts, in a way, is still being told. So what I think we're to take away from this is the, the way the story ends is that though we're not giving an ending, I think we are given an invitation. We're not giving an ending, but we are given an invitation. I think what Luke would have us do and what he would, what he would say to Ridgewood Church in 2023 is go read and learn from and digest and memorize and wrestle through chapters 1 through 28. And then listen, he would say this. Now go be chapters 29, 30, 31, and following. The ending isn't exactly an ending. In reality, the ending of the book of Acts is for us a beginning. For us, for you, for me, it is a launch pad. The book doesn't end with a period, it ends with an ellipsis that we are invited to live out as a church family. Credit goes to one of our residents for making the period ellipses comment. That was so good, I had to include it. The invitation for us this morning is to join in on the inevitable advance of the gospel that Acts portrays for us. I mean, what if we saw ourselves, our lives, our, our, our living and moving as a church as being the next stage of the book of Acts? The the acts of the apostles becoming the acts of God's church across the ages. The acts of the saints at Ridgewood and King's Table in Halifax and Resurrection Church in Greer and Second Prez Church in Greenville and so on. What if we saw the ending of Acts not as an ending but an invitation for our church family to devote ourselves to the same word and the same message and the same mission that so captivated the men and the women who lived throughout the book of Acts? That's why it's so fitting for us, I think, to land on Friends Month next month. It just seems like a perfect sort of response to what Acts has been showing us and inviting us to do. As we mentioned, Friends Month, we're going to be spending time inviting people and and those who are close to us but far from God, inviting them into our church family so that they can see, I think, the most powerful apologetic, which is the church being the church, doing the thing that, that the church does. What if we saw ourselves in our lives as the next stage of this book? as chapters 29, 30, 31, and following. I think we're given an invitation here, but I think chapter 8 also includes for us a word of promise. How did this chapter open? Do you remember? What happened at the beginning of chapter 28? Paul safely lands on Malta. Paul's bit by a viper, a snake, a serpent. And Paul shows himself to be completely impervious to it. And then what does Paul do with the serpent? He throws it into a fire. And the uh, the people on the island of Malta conclude that Paul is a god for those actions. And you know what? Defeating a serpent, withstanding its bite, tossing a serpent into a fire, that is a very God in flesh thing to do, right? Jesus tells his disciples in Luke 10, I have given you authority to tread serpents. And the reason is because Jesus has is and will defeat the old serpent, the old dragon who weaseled in way back in Genesis chapter 3. And Jesus will cast the serpent into the fire. The God of peace will soon crush the serpent under our feet. And I think implicit in this story is a promise that the serpent cannot win. The serpent will not be victorious. The promise is that the gospel will advance boldly, unhinderedly to all people. I mean, it's amazing to see the Lord's providence over his church in the advance of the gospel in this story. I mean, that that isn't to say that we won't suffer. That isn't to say that we're immune to shipwrecks and serpents. Maybe don't go handle serpents this afternoon, probably. 
I mean, there's many Christians who have suffered and given their lives for Jesus. As chapter 14 reminds us, the kingdom comes through tribulation. But it is to say that there is no force that can stop the advance of the word. No force, no scheme, no enemy that can stop what was started in Acts chapter 1. You know what else I love about Acts chapter 28? What was Paul doing while he was in prison under house arrest? What was he doing during this time? He was writing. What was he writing? Letters. What letters was Paul writing? Oh, you know, letters like Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. Letters that are filled with words that have been sung, cherished, and memorized by billions of Christians over centuries. Words like this in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Words like this, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 and following. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. Words like Philippians chapter, uh, chapter 3, verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a resurrection of my own that comes from the law, but that, that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Or words like Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And if it wasn't for Paul's imprisonment, we would not be given these words and these promises and these images and the hope for salvation. And then my favorite part is that the way that the book ends, the two words that the book ends on are boldness and unhinderedly. Now we translate it without hindrance because that's proper English, but the Greek actually reads with boldness and unhinderedly. The word of the kingdom continues to advance. Verse 31, Paul spends his time proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness, unhinderedly. Paul welcomes all. He invites all people, Gentiles included, and with boldness and without hindrance, the gospel advances. The book ends with an invitation and a statement, a sure statement, a promise about the inevitable, bold, unhindered, unimpeded, victorious advance of the gospel of the Lord Jesus. There's no cell, no scheme, no synagogue, no sword, no Caesar, no suffering, no serpent that can stop the kingdom of God from advancing. And aren't we a testament to that today? I mean, we look around the room, and I just love thinking about the church across the world and across the ages. And I mean, here we are, 5,000 miles away from Rome, in a part of the world that Paul didn't even know existed. We have Jewish, Scandinavian, European, Latin American heritage in this room. We have brown eyes, we have blue eyes, we have green eyes, we have brown, black, red, and blonde hair. And here we are, baptizing one another in the name of the Lord Jesus, the hope of Israel, thousands of thousands of years later. The same Jewish Messiah singing loudly, he's alive, he died for me, joining the chorus of saints in China, Uganda, Peru, Russia, Korea, Turkey, and everywhere in between. 
And the reason is, is because the gospel advances with all boldness and unhinderedly to the end of the ages. That's the promise for us this morning. The book ends with a, not with an ending, but with an invitation. An invitation to join on the mission that is sure and secure in Christ. But I think we're also given a bit of a warning in this passage. The book begins and ends with the kingdom of Jesus. And Jesus tells us that his kingdom has come and that his kingdom is not of this world. And he invites us into this kingdom by faith. And the great tragedy of this passage is that the nation of Israel rejects their own savior. Acts ends triumphantly in some ways. But it also, it's kind of ominous, isn't it? That Paul stands pronouncing judgment on the nation of Israel for the rejection of Christ and then turns to the Gentiles. I think there's a word for us here this morning because those who should have believed, those who should have seen it, didn't. And I think the warning for us is that for many of us who have grown up in and around church who have been completely inoculated to the stories of Jesus and the gospel is that we could be blind to what it is the gospel has to say to us. Jesus says, repent and believe for the kingdom is at hand. Give yourself to Jesus. Repent and believe the gospel. Jesus is the king who forgives, who bears God's wrath for his people, and he invites us into his kingdom and gives us his spirit where we live and we walk as kingdom people loved and forgiven and known by our king. And the risk we run in Greer, South Carolina, is that we could be completely cold and indifferent to that good news. And so while I think that this story invites us to participate in the mission and gives us assurance about the, 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 impossibly, uh, the, the unstoppable advance of the gospel, it also gives us a warning that we're not blind and we're not deaf to this, that we don't harden ourselves to the preaching of the gospel. And this morning, I know and, and it just, I feel certain that based on where we are on the map, that every one of us in this room has been exposed to the story of Jesus. And I just wonder if some of us assume that based on having been exposed to it as many times as we have, based on having been in church buildings for years, we assume that we have, been in, we have embraced the gospel of the Lord Jesus. But I'm not certain that's the case. And so the warning for you this morning is to hear and believe, to repent of your sins and turn to Christ and be forgiven by the forgiveness that he offers and makes available by his own blood. If you're interested in talking more about what it means to be a Christian or what it means to, to wrestle through belief in Christ, I'll be in the lobby afterwards and I'm certain that the person sitting around you would love to talk with you about those same things. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, as we take the Lord's Supper in a few moments, the word for you would be to pass on the sign and take the one who is signified by the sign. Take Christ. Christian, the word for you this morning is to receive the word of the gospel joyfully with anticipation with assurance and confidence of what Christ has done for you. At the beginning, I asked about endings, and we lamented a kind of lack of resolution to the story of Acts. But the glorious thing for us Christians is that the story does end with capital R, resolution for us. The end will come with a satisfying conclusion that scratches the justice itch, that scratches the joy and longing itch that each of us possess, that puts a bow on the whole thing when the Lord Jesus returns to renew and redeem his bride. And once a month, we have the opportunity to look forward to that consummation, to look forward to the resurrection and coming of the Lord Jesus through the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper, we have broken bread and we have poured juice, which reminds us, reminds us that Christ was broken for us, that his body was given for our sins, and that his blood was shed for us, and that we are washed by the blood of Jesus. 
as we take the supper, it also reminds us that we belong together. Like Mariah Carey says, like we, we are one another's. You're my brother, you're my sister. We belong together in Christ. And it reminds us of the future, the promise that we have in Jesus, that he will return and make all sad things untrue. And this is just the hors d'oeuvres of the feast that awaits us. Now, in just a few moments, I'm going to pray. And then after I pray, I'm going to uh, work through our liturgy. But the way that uh, the communion logistics work is I'm going to invite one of our deacons, Dylan, up to help distribute and one of our elders, Aaron, up to help distribute. And you'll make your way kind of on the outside. You'll take the elements and you'll sit back in your seat. And then once we're all seated with the elements, we'll take the supper together. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you that through the testimony of the saints in the book of Acts and the, the men and women that have preceded us, we, we, we have an example and we have encouragement for the mission. We pray that you would give us boldness and confidence in the, the surety of the mission. And God, we do pray that you would penetrate and pierce the hearts of uh, those who are here who are just completely cold and dead to the gospel. And would you show them and, and, and awaken their eyes to see you and your glory, and would you, um, would you draw them to yourself? In the next few moments as we take the supper, God, we pray that our faith would be strengthened. We pray that our bond as brothers and sisters in Christ would be strengthened. And we pray that our hope would be deepened as we remember that we do await a final triumph over sin and death in the coming of the Lord Jesus. Jesus, we love you. We pray that your spirit would be uh, in our midst these next few moments. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen.